Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for being here. Welcome to, uh, you know, I don't even know which number PDX Jazz this is. Um, I'm so used to working this at different festivals, and I know this is, you know, a respectable number. Let's put it that way, you know, and PDX Jazz has been around for a while. The last time I was here was about 15 years ago, and a gentleman named Bruce Lundvall was doing a whole kind of celebration on the 60th anniversary of Blue Note Records, which he was in charge of. And I mentioned that for two reasons. One, because it really showed how um, jazz-focused and jazz-friendly a city Portland is, because they were really talking about the history and the tradition of the music. And secondly, because the name Bruce Lundball and Blue Note Records is going to figure very prominently in the uh, conversation that we're going to have with our guest uh, this uh, afternoon. So, uh, my name is Ashley Kahn. I'm a journalist. I'm an author. A byproduct of... I'm sorry? Oh, okay. Crosstalk, I believe, is the term for that. Um, and uh, I'm also uh, someone who has been inside the music world for a long time. I've uh, been a tour manager, an artist manager, and uh, now I do a lot of these uh, conversations with artists, with audiences uh, present at different festivals and conferences, etc. And I just want to take my hat off, literally, to PDX Jazz, the folks here, uh, especially Chris Doss, Nicholas Harris, Jonathan Rudnick, for taking the energy and the time to create these kind of moments where you guys can meet the artists in a manner that allows the stories and the history and the tradition behind the music to come forth and deepen your appreciation and allow the music to you know, have another way of presenting itself to you guys. This is not done at every festival. It's not done at every kind of music event. So it's very special. And you guys, you had many choices of where to be on your Friday afternoon. You made the right choice. I just want you to know that. So um, uh, without any further ado, I want you to please welcome our guest this afternoon who's going to be performing this evening as well, guitarist, musician, an incredible um, spirit, Stanley Jordan. Thank you, man. Thank you. Uh, Stanley and I were just talking about uh, how we first met, and it was in New Orleans in the year 1986 um, when uh, you were just getting your career started. And uh, you had an album out on the revived Blue Note label. Mm. If you can imagine Blue Note not existing, not being active for a couple of years, that was the early 80s. And Blue Note, which we think of as this enduring brand in jazz, had sort of been mothballed for a while from the late 70s. And a gentleman named Bruce Lundvall had brought it back, revived it, and the very first new artist signed to the label is sitting right next to me, Stanley Jordan. Thank you all so much. So I'm a, normally accustomed to having someone on my right instead of my left, but it's fine. It's fine. I it's just switch. It's a habit because, no, it's all right, because 
since I don't have the guitar, because normally I have a guitar, so I advise the other person to be on my right so that it's not aggressive like my guitar is pointing at them, you know. But, or the chance of the, uh, the, the head of the stock hitting the, uh, yeah, the person. Yeah. yeah, no, you don't want that. But I will have the guitar tonight. So, <laughs> yeah. And uh, we were talking about, excuse me, about Bruce. And um, anyone who is from the music industry on any level, musicians, people who worked on the ind- industry side in the media, everyone, if you mention the name Bruce Lundvall, they'll all say, oh, Bruce, what a great person. And they all have a- wonderful things to say about him. You know, even before he revived the Blue Note label, he had quite a, a history. Um, he was president of uh, Columbia Records for, I think, about five years. And there was a period of time when Columbia was <coughs> signing a lot of jazz artists. And there's a lot of music. Now, I, I should have done my, my research, but to, just to be sure, but, but I think a lot of these artists, like a lot of the sort of jazz and jazz rock and jazz fusion artists, were on Columbia. Um, I think Maha, was Maha Vishnu on Columbia. Absolutely, Maha Vishnu Orchestra. Yeah. So no. John McLaughlin, and uh, and there, there's a whole lot of other music that kind of goes around that. Miles Davis. Um, he worked with Miles Davis, I believe, on Columbia too. Yeah. And so, I mean, when when I was starting out, <laughs> excuse me, I have a little bit of respiratory stuff going on, but. Um, when I was starting out, I went around to a lot of jam sessions, and I, I started out on, on the ground floor, you know, because I went to, uh, went to a lot of sessions. I hung out mostly with musicians. Um, my main gig was as a street musician in New York, and I talked to the musicians about how to find a path on the industry side. <clears throat> and um, the name that came up the most among the musicians was, was Bruce Lundvall. And some people said, only talk to Bruce. Don't even bother talking to anyone else. He had such a wonderful reputation because he had a really good um, rapport with, with musicians. Um, there's a, a story, I, I don't know, most people probably don't know this, um, but... Um, um, a singer by the name of Bobby McFerrin. He signed with Bruce, and um, so he had this idea to do this album with only his voice, no other instruments, nothing else, just his voice. And Bruce said, well, Bobby, you know, that's really never been done before. It's your first album. I really think that you should you know, do something a little bit more, you know, mainstream. We'll get you established, and then, you know, we'll go from there. And Bobby said, but, but Bruce, I, I have to do the album this way. And Bruce said, well, why do you have to do the album this way? And Bobby said, because God wants me to. And Bruce said, okay, well, who am I to stand in the way of God? I guess you better do the album your way. I mean, that's, you know, that's the way Bruce was, you know. <laughs> Well, God, God, you know, when he gets involved with A&R decisions, you, you, don't, want to, you don't want to cross God, you know. It, it's, you know, just, uh, this is deep, deep history stuff. Mm-hmm. But Bruce's mentor...
at Columbia mm. Records was Goddard Lieberson. Mm. And that's how he used to sign his memos to his staff, was <laughs> with the first syllable of his first name, G-O-D. <laughs> so, um, I, and I don't think that's what Bobby McFerrin was saying. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. point is, of course, mm-hmm. that Bruce does listen to artists. He was mm-hmm. one of those rare yeah. executives mm-hmm. who allowed the artist to go forward. Mm-hmm. And in your case, mm-hmm. he basically invested in an artist who was absolutely unproven. Mm-hmm. Um, you had one independent release that mm-hmm. had preceded the Blue Note release, mm-hmm. and you were basically known as the guy who tapped on the guitar. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So, you know, I was doing my street music gigs, and it was um, Bill, <coughs> Bill Milkowski, the music writer, he called Bruce and he said, Bruce, you have to hear this guy. Um, trust me, you, you just have to hear him. Bruce said, okay, bring him in. So we went into his office and he just went out of his way to you know, make me comfortable. Do you need anything? Just, just take your time. Everything's fine, no problem. So I felt really comfortable. So because I felt so comfortable, I was able to really play for Bruce. And, and he, he said, I love what you're doing. I, I want to work with you. Now, at that time, I was living, um, I wasn't really living in, in New York. I was um, living in Wisconsin, and I had a kind of a, a, a bit of a hermetic life. And I said, okay, I, I definitely want to work with you. I'm just not ready yet. But, but I, I will, when, when the time is right, I, I will. Now, m- many people would probably say, you know, you shouldn't turn down an opportunity like that. This is a big you know, record company opportunity. Now, at this time, this was before Bruce was uh, on uh, Blue Note. He was um, on Elektra Records, and he had an, an imprint on Elektra. It was an Elektra musician, and they were signing some really interesting musicians and doing some really interesting music. But because I had done my, um, my independent record, I was kind of tuned in to the production and manufacturing side of, of records. And I noticed that on those records, they did a two-color print. And, they, I mean, it was really classy, well-designed, everything looked, looked really great, but it was a two-color print. And what that said to me was that the budget was limited. And so I, I thought, you know, I just don't know what I should do here because what happens if I sign with this label and then Bruce leaves the label? What Then I'm going to be stuck, you know? But I thought about it, I thought about it, and I said, okay. Um, it wasn't just that. There were some other things going on in, in my life. Uh, my daughter was born and various things that I wanted to do on my personal level. So finally, everything came around and, and I was ready to, to work with Bruce. So I walked into his office with my lawyer, and I said, okay, we're ready, you know, to go forward. What, what do we do? And he said, well, before we talk, I have to tell you something. I don't work here anymore. Um, last night, I got a call from the chairman of Capital Industries, and they want to revive Blue Note Records. They want to have uh, also a pop label. They, have a, they want to have a major presence on the East Coast, and they want me to head the whole thing. And I want you to be the first artist I sign. So give me a chance to get that started 
and then, then we'll, we'll start on Blue Note. Like, wow. <laughs> I'm just really glad I didn't <laughs> come in the day before, you know? <laughs> so uh, you just somehow, some, sometimes, you know, you just, I've been thinking about this because I just got back from, from Hawaii, and we looked at the surfers, you know, and that's always been a metaphor for me, you know, is finding the right wave and surfing the wave. So I found the wave at that point. <laughs> This gentleman in the front row here is sitting above uh, some LPs. Sir, mm-hmm. could you share with us the, ver- the top LP that you have on that little stack there? So this record, Magic Touch, was the first record that we made. And they actually had um, two record companies because they had Blue Note and they had Manhattan EMI. Right. So they had a full um, promotion staff for both record labels. And this was the only record that they had. So there was actually two record companies promoting this record, the jazz company and the pop company. So that really helped. Yeah. So Manhattan is probably best known for, like, Richard Marks and some pop acts that were hitting in that, that time period. But the Blue Note thing was really the passion mm-hmm. that Bruce Lundwall had for the music that he had grown up with, which is jazz, of course. And I also um, um, signed with the, with the pop label as well. <laughs> I think you have the, the blue record that's underneath there. I think you have that one underneath. Flying Home I did on Manhattan EMI. So that was that one. <laughs> so the point is that I, you know, as young as this gentleman seems, you know, you've got this incredible history of fourteen albums. You've done collaborations in the um, uh, with with such hard hitting fusion drummers as Billy Cobham, Dennis Chambers. Oh my God! <laughs> you know, just thinking about that. Kenwood Denard plays a lot with me these days too. That's great. That's great. Um, of course, uh, Charnette Moffat, mm-hmm. uh, you've worked a lot with the incredible bassist. But then mm-hmm. on the other side, you've uh, collaborated with jam bands like Phil Lesh, Humphreys mm-hmm. McGee, Dave Matthews. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about, you know, since that time period when you broke into the uh, industry in 86 mm-hmm. till now, you know, has, looking back on it, what's, what's the continuing thread? What's the... Um, philosophy that kind of guides that I think the main thread of all of that is that the lightning finds the path of least resistance so I always I always did what felt natural for me and um, you know it wasn't always what people in, in the know <laughs> recommended and um, so you know I had my ups and downs but I stuck with what what made sense to me what felt right to me and so when I look back I feel you know you you were saying um, how when we met and I was still kind of just getting started you know I still feel like that now I feel like I'm just getting started <laughs> me too because <laughs> <laughs> there's so many things that I still haven't gotten to yet and, and, I'm, and I'm really making a point of trying to get more of the things from my bucket list together, you know. So um, on the composition side, I've been working on um, a piece, a uh, concerto for guitar, for electric guitar and orchestra. 
and um, I better not say who it's dedicated to. It should be a surprise. And I also have some electronic music stuff that's been in my past going way, way, way back that's really been un under, under the surface, and I really want to kind of bring that out. And I want to do more teaching, too. Um, I'm actually, this, this mo most of this month, I've been doing a teaching residency in Northern California at this <coughs> wonderful place called the Rikus Center for Human Enhancement. Uh, Gary Rikus started this way back in the day. In fact, he was my, my, my first professional, my first job, well, my first job was I was a volunteer at a recycling center back in 1972. But my first job that I actually got paid for was doing um, re um, studio recordings for this guy, Gary Rikus, who was making um, children's records. And I thought, wow, what a great thing to do because, you know, this was like hit music, like not like, you know, hokey kids music record stuff. So this whole idea of making hit music for children and to be, be a part of that felt really good. I think it's important that we do things that feel good to us, that have some meaning for us. So that's really kind of how I got started. And um, now, this, this was in his living room. He was independently producing records in his living room. Now he's got this big complex. He's got like 7,000 people who come and go. It's a big athletic gym. There's a music department. They have a nature studies department. Amazing. And it's, it's just wonderful what, what they're doing. And what they're trying to do now is replicate the model of how they work um, you know, to other places. So one of the reasons that I've been, been going there is, is I want to assist in sort of figuring out sort of the code. I mean, people, visionary people are irreplaceable, but you, you do your best to figure out what the process is. So, so I've been helping with that. And also just teaching, you know. Uh, I, I love teaching. And um, I don't just teach advanced musicians. Um, because for me, music is a, is a life path. And the number one message that I have for my students is that if you're really passionate about being as good as you can be in music, eventually the, the music will make demands on you to the point where you realize that you have to upgrade your life condition in order to accomplish your musical goals. So there's things that you want to get to in the music, and you, you, you can't learn some new scale or faster fingers. That's not going to get you there. There's something else that's going to get you there. Maybe it is, um, you know, getting more sleep or eating better or dealing with a toxic relationship or whatever it is. Um, and, and so this is part of the amazing thing about music, you know, I'm, uh, one of the many things I also want to do is I want to finish my master's degree in, in music therapy. And one of the great things about music therapy is we look at the way that music can be instrumental. I mean, I don't mean like playing instruments, but the music itself is instrumental in accomplishing some other goal. And so, for example, um, you might find that singing or playing a wind instrument can help with um, respiratory conditions or... Songwriting can help with issues on your script, like the story of your life, 
things like that. So anyway, um, one of the things that I learned from my studies of music therapy is that music is the only stimulus we know of that can simultaneously stimulate every area of the brain. So music has this sort of an awakening power, and it also has this integrating power. And it's, 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 when you see that, it's not hard to understand why. You know, because anything could serve this function. You could want to be a better golfer or whatever it is, and it'll inspire you to upgrade your life. But because of the naturally integrative nature of music, I find it has a particularly strong power to, to, talk, to your, talk to you about your life and inspire you. So that's really why I, why I do this, you know? So like I had one student um, who is not a musician, um, she barely had ever played any instruments be- before. And she was a very loving and devoted mother, and she had devoted years and years of her life to taking care of her kids, taking care of her family. She was always taking care of other people. And she wanted to do something for herself. So she, she came and, and took a lesson with me, and she wanted to jam. Um, but she had um, some fear about jamming with someone who had so much skill on the guitar. So she, what she did was she had me play the guitar left-handed, what, which what, I had what, never done before. And what was her instrument? She played, um, well, she, there was a room full of instruments, so she went around from one thing to another. <laughs> I think she got, she got into drums the most, I think. That's okay. where her, her, she really let her freak flag fly on the drums. And... Um, so there's a, there's a video of her just hair flying all around, this big smile on her face, like almost demonic possession, you know. I'm not in a good way, I mean, but, you know, just, just really just having fun. We were making up songs, making up lyrics, and I'm struggling with playing guitar on the left side. <laughs> so it definitely leveled the playing field. And I said, you have got to show this video to your daughters. They are going to... They, they, and, and, by the way, they're going to want to see this side of you more. <laughs> They're going to be like, Mom, we've never seen you like this. And this is just one of, of, of the many stories that I, I have from this. This is, this is why I do this, because I know that music has changed my life. And it, it's not, yeah, whatever level you're at, you know, it, it's awesome. You don't have to be a black belt in music to get the benefit from it. That's incredible. I think most musicians would be very happy just to like be able to have the opportunity to perform, and that's their kind of restorative energy that they're mm-hmm. putting out into the world. Mm-hmm. But you're challenging yourself on so many different levels. Yeah, yeah. And I think I'm not going to say that hierarchies are bad or evil or whatever. Healthy hierarchies are, are, are fine. But I think sometimes we overdo it with the hierarchies. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't flatten the world out, but I would say sometimes, you know, it's great to have the attitude that everyone is, is equal, everyone is, is equivalent. Um, certainly, um, compared to the, to the void, we're all equal, you know? And, and, and so to sort of, you know, undress, you know... Um, I don't know, I was trying to find the right words. I wanted to say undress the emperor, but the emperor's already undressed. But you know what I mean? Like to, to, just, to just sort of 
get rid of all of the, the, the matrix. When I was making my um, State of Nature album, um, and in fact, this was um, back in 2008, and this was another time that I was spending a lot of time at the, at the Rikers Center, and they had a, a field station, and it was um, out near the beach where the forest meets the beach, and so I stayed there so I could woodshed and get ready for my production on the album. And it was a place where they do nature studies. So things started to click for me, and I really started to get in tune with the nature. And I started recording sounds in the environment and thinking, I could use some of this on the album. And I I was thinking a lot about the issues of humans in the natural world. How do we get separated? How can we, you know, heal the separation? Then I'd go into the studio after having pondered these questions, and I started to notice that the same issues of, that I was confronting, like how to achieve excellence in a studio, were the same issues that we as a species had to confront in how to achieve excellence in our role as a, as, as a species. Like, what is our role anyway? You know, um, you know, if you go back to the Bible, you know, there's, a, there's a, 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 this idea that we're the... Um, we're, we're the t- caretakers. We're the caretakers of the, of the garden. You know, and I mean, even before the Bible, I think that this is an understanding that we've had of our role in things, and yet we're the ones that are messing it up. What's going wrong here? So the more I started to make these connections, I, it started to seep into the album, and I started to not only use nature themes on the album, but I started to do the music differently, like... I started to think, well, where, where am I getting out of touch with my own nature? And one of the things that came up was that my first instrument was piano. And I, I stopped playing piano. I started playing guitar. I loved guitar. And, and I developed this identity as a, as a guitarist. But I still loved some of the things you could do on the piano. And that led me to developing my technique on the guitar. And yet, there were still things that you could only do on the piano. So when I started thinking, well, how am I out of touch with my own nature? And I realized that, you know, first, my first instrument was piano, and I love to play piano, and I should do that because that's what I love. And the reason that I wasn't doing it was because I was caught in this mental matrix of my ego as a virtuoso guitarist. And I realized, you know... I need to just get over that, you know? And so once I made the, the decision to start using the piano, then it was amazing how quickly all that went away. And, and then it just became, well, how am I going to get back to the bridge? And how am I going to voice this chord? And, oh, that was interesting. I'm going to play that again. And it, just, it was just all about the music. And, and so I on that album, State of Nature, um, that was the first album that I played piano on, and, and in fact, um, I've been playing piano now in almost all of my, my shows, and it's more of an instinctive thing, you know, and I still don't have the knowledge and the training on piano, and yet I find that when I sit at the piano, I, I make music, and that, after all, is, is what's important. Um, 
we're of course talking with Stanley Jordan here, mm-hmm. and um, I want to invite you guys to join the conversation. So if you do have any questions, I'm not going to wait till the very end for like two or three Q and A's. Um, you know, please just come on up to the stage. I'll pass my mic to you guys, and you can talk to Stanley directly if you want. If I see mm-hmm. you standing here, I'll stop and you know share the moment with you. Um, in the meantime, you know, uh, Stanley mentioned uh, performing. Stanley is performing this evening at 7 p.m. right here in the center um, at the, is it the Newmark Theater? Am I getting, it's, it's right here. And it's at 7 o'clock. And you are opening for an old friend. Well, you know, Larry Carlton and I used to do a, a lot of shows together. So, you know, it's going to be nice to, to see him again and you know, How long has it been? It's been at least 20 years since I've seen him. And I don't even think we played together then, so probably more like 30 years. I know you mentioned the whole piano thing, but there is this idea of the the guitar kind of brotherhood, sisterhood, etc. that you're part of. Yeah, and we had a big deal with that um, a couple of months ago because I was, for the second time, a judge in the... Well, they used to call it the Thelonious Monk Institute renamed the Herbie Han- Hancock Institute of Jazz, and they have an annual competition. And so this was this the second... This is at UCLA, right? No, this was in uh, Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. So for the second time, I was a, a judge in this, because um, they, they had guitar again this, this past December. And so I was the, they had uh, 12 semifinalists chosen from around the world, so they all played, and then we chose three finalists, and then the three finalists played. And so there was a nice vibe with all the guitarists who were judges in this. We had um, Pat Metheny, we had Russell Malone, we had um, um, John Schofield, we had uh, Lee Rittenauer, we had uh, Lionel Nwaki, we had um, Chico Pinheiro from Brazil. You know, so it was just a nice vibe. That's called an A list right there. <laughs> My God. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, even just sitting there in the car or back and forth on the way, just the conversations and stuff, you know, it just felt really, really good. Mm-hmm. So tell us about this evening. What, what, what's, what, what do you have planned, and how does one open for Larry Garlton? Well, I mean, I don't really think of it as opening per se. I mean, I mean, we're on the same bill together, and I think it makes more sense for me to play first because since I'm going to be playing solo guitar and he's playing with a band, oh, yeah. I think energetically, I think it's a good energetic order for the show, you know. Um, but, I mean, I'm sure, you know, I, I, I'm sure that by playing before him, I'm going to get the crowd good and ready <laughs> to hear him. So, you know, um, I know, like, like um, um, my, my, my trio has played... Um, I don't know, maybe four or five times um, um, back in the 80s um, on the same show with Miles Davis. And one of the things that, that Miles often did is, regardless of who was considered the headliner, he just wanted to play first. He just wanted to just do his show and, and get, get moving. <laughs> that was Miles. Yeah. You know, by the way, you guys know about the new documentary? That's going to be out on PBS. I think it uh, debuts next Tuesday. 
and they finally were able to figure out a way to put the whole Miles Davis story with all the chapters into a two-hour sequence. I remember one time, um, we'll get to your questions in just a second, I just want to say this one thing. I remember one time um, my mother called me, and she said, I just don't understand that. I just feel so stupid because, you know, they're doing this special on Miles Davis, and and they're playing all these this music from different phases of his career, and I can't tell the difference. It all sounds the same to me. And I thought, well, hmm. Let me ask you this. Are you listening to, like, the band as a whole, or are you focusing on the trumpet? She said, well, I'm focusing on the trumpet. And I said, oh, okay, well, that actually makes sense because he really didn't change that much. That's beautiful. I love your mother. <laughs> what a great way of listening to him. I actually I teach at NYU, and I've, I've created a montage of Miles's solo moments, not when he's playing the theme, mm-hmm. but when he's actually inventing a solo mm-hmm. from like, and done it totally randomly, where it jumps from like the 50s to the 80s, mm-hmm. back to the 60s, up to the 70s, mm-hmm. and back wow. and forth. And it's about five minutes long, and, I, wow. and then the students talk about it, and it's, wow. it's just a kind of listening exercise. Oh. And it's like, well, what do you hear? What, what's, what is uh-huh. Miles's way of uh-huh. being himself, uh-huh. you know? And is he consistent? And the answer uh-huh. is always yes. Charnett uh-huh. Moffat told me that um, Miles said to him, so, so when, you're, when you're soloing and you get an idea, don't play that idea. There's another idea that's going to come after that. And don't play that one. There's another one that's going to come after that. Play that one. <laughs> so please. Hello, my friend. I don't know if you remember me. You played my club, Chico's House of Jazz. Oh, yes, of course. How you doing? Charlie Rouse's wow, son. Yes, right, yes. Right, right. Wow. Um, so great to see you, Chico. You know, I, I, I was in town this week doing some, some, some promotions, and I looked in the book, mm. and I seen you, and I said, my man is here, oh. right? <laughs> so I took out some time today, man, mm-hmm. to come publicly mm-hmm. to support mm-hmm. you and to say well, hello. You. And Maria and her daughter said hi. Oh, Todd I say said hi, hi, too. And I have a great memory of your dad playing. Um, it was someplace outdoors in Jersey, and I don't remember exactly what park it was. But it was just wonderful to hear the, his history and his, and his instrument. You, you know, it was funny mm. you, when you were talking about the 80s that I remember the first time you met when I was running the Count Basie Theater. Mm. And you and Kenwood Denard and, <laughs> and uh, Alex mm-hmm. Blake. And, uh, and so, mm-hmm. and then when we came to the club, so again, oh. I just came to say, Stanley, hi, mm-hmm. man. And I love oh. you. You dig? Oh, thank and, you. Uh, Keep it up, I'll tell mm-hmm. Maria. Okay. <laughs> Thank Thanks you so much. Thanks for sharing that. I remember um, when I did that gig, there was a guy, was it Tom, I think, the, the police, Todd, the police officer, and I stayed at his house. And um, that night, there was a, a dog that got loose. Maria's dog got loose, and he ran, ran and got the dog. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the old days, you know? The police officer... You know, catches, rescues the road dog. stories. <laughs> That's what this is called. Yeah. Wow, so great to see you. Oh. <laughs> Do you have it for him now? <laughs> okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> so uh, speaking of New Jersey, you're a Princeton grad, right? Yes. And at Princeton, when, when you were there, you were studying music, but you were also studying math. And I, I was always interested in the whole idea that um, your approach to music, you know, which starts with the, you know, the tonic being the one, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and you build from that. You had figured out a way of uh, thinking of it as starting at zero, mm-hmm. like everyone else counts. Mm-hmm. And musicians start with one. They don't start with zero. Yeah, well, you start with one when you're counting, and you start with zero when you're measuring. And the insight that I had was that when you're talking about intervals, the space between notes, you're actually measuring. And also to do the 12-note chromatic scale, to use that as a ruler for measuring intervals between notes rather than using the do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do major scale. So you never have to deal with sharps and flats. And I had actually run across that when I was in high school, and my math teacher said, oh, that's called mod 12. And so I had already kind of developed it to a certain degree when I first started college. And I remember I was talking to someone who was going to be a music major. This was the first week. Um, and she, we, we were two people who just knew already we were going to major in music. So I said, hey, I came up with this, this numerical system for, for notes and intervals. And so I explained it explain the system to her and she said um, oh um, Milton Babbitt already invented that and I said really wow how can I find out more about him and she said well he teaches here so it was just another one of those magical things and so I ended up studying with Milton and he was a wonderful teacher tremendous inspiration just one of the most brilliant people I've ever met and so he had a big influence on me too and I developed what, what I call the, the Jordan Chromatic System. And since I've been teaching this month, this has been my opportunity to finally really start putting it down and, you know, for my students. Because I've been wanting to do this. I've been threatening to, <laughs> don't make me write my system down. So, so finally I'm actually doing it, you know, because I actually have some real people. So, okay, I'm going to write this page, and then I know who I'm going to hand this to tomorrow. So it's been really an in- inspiration for that. And I'll just say um, that the, the, the main thing to understand about this is that math, mathematics can do a lot in terms of helping us to understand it and to define the possibilities of the structure of music. But there's an essence of music that goes beyond the structure, and I don't see any way that math can really help us with that. So you might think that, you know, I've got a formula and I've got music in a nutshell with my formula, but that's not how it works. You might have the shell, but you don't have the nut. (laughs) But having the shell can be very, very um, beneficial. Um, And so this whole idea about formal languages or languages or systems of thought where we have maximized our our consistency... um, is a really interesting topic for me. Um, you know, I think it relates to other areas in life. So, for example, purisms, like whether, whether you're a jazz purist or a religious fundamentalist or whatever, it's kind of a similar thing. It's like you've, got, you've constructed this world, and in your world you have eliminated um, inconsistencies. And according to Kurt Gödel in his Gödel's Incompleteness Theorem, he mathematically proved that math 
can never tell the whole story. This was back in 1930. Because what he showed is that formal languages is that he, what he showed is that you can either be consistent or you can be complete, but you can't be both. And so you can have this system that's totally self-consistent within itself, but there's going to be truth outside of your system that your system can't deal with because that's the nature of the universe. So the other thing that it says is that the universe is inherently contradictory. Like if you want to be complete, then you have to be able to embrace contradiction, which is also interesting because, you know, I talked about religious fundamentalisms. So, you know, some people will take that and say, well, well, that means that, you know, that obviously, um, you know, disqualifies the Bible because you can find contradictions in the Bible. Well, then doesn't that also mean that it's, you know, somewhat complete then, you know? It's very interesting. Um, so I just sort of putting a cap on that whole, that whole direction of, of thought. Um, for myself, um, when I look at criticisms that have made of my career, I think the number one criticism where I'll say, you know, um, okay, guilty, of ch guilty as charged, I think that I probably have been inconsistent um, in, my, in my career. Um, but in, in what way? Um, well, like I'll jump from one thing to another, and, you know, and, and, and because of all the different things that I do, um, you know, it's, I, I go with the flow. It's like, look at the path of lightning. It doesn't go in a straight line, you know? So I would say, yeah, I suppose I've been somewhat in, inconsistent. But on the other hand, you know, I've been complete like a mofo. You know what I mean? Like, like, like I've embraced so many different aspects and, and, and taking it to the level where I'm looking at the connection between music and life in general. What I realize is that that has been my, my true mission all, all along, and that the music is part of something larger. So that's why I say I feel like I'm... I still feel like I'm just getting started because p positioning the music like a like a gemstone in the middle of of a larger array of jewels that's what I'm working on now. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Come on yes, up. Please. What do you suggest we listen for tonight? I would say it would be like, like when my mother was listening to Miles Davis and she was listening to what ties it all together. Um, it, you know, yes, I like to do a lot of different kinds of music, but I don't think of it as being like really different. It's just... It's just like, you know, you wake up in the morning and I feel like wearing this shirt or I feel like wearing that, you know, scarf or whatever, you know. It's just the same, the, the, the same thing. It's just maybe on a, on, on, on a more varied level than, than most, you know. So maybe I'll play some Mozart, you know, maybe I'll play some Hendrix, maybe I'll play some Katy Perry. But it all fits together, hopefully. <laughs> Well, I remember when you were doing Led Zeppelin. Yeah, I might 80s. do some Led Zeppelin. I mean, I, I, I agree with Aristotle that a work of art should have, should have unity. So I'm definitely going to be going for that. Um, you know, the, the, you have the Standards album. So, uh, you know, the, um, 
the, the kind of worldview that you have of music is incredibly 360 degree, you know, and is that, I mean, obviously that's going to continue because uh, this year you've been doing a Hendrix tribute and mm-hmm. you're, you, you're doing you, you know, your own sort of uh, playlist, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, so, you know, with the, with the Hendrix tribute, which I, I'm not doing this tonight, but I have this show called, called Stanley Plays Jimmy, and it's my fantasy Jimi Hendrix concert if he were still alive and playing today. So I draw from... I mean, he was the first guitarist I emulated when I was first playing. I mean, I remember when I got the news that he had passed away. And I, and I was still a piano player at the time. And I remember thinking, we have to do what we can to keep his legacy alive. And in that moment, I made up my mind that I was going to learn how to play guitar. So Jimmy was there for me from, from the beginning. And so his vocabulary and his approach to music was something that I absorbed at, at an early age. And it's just kind of like the imprinting process. You know, when you learn a language at a young age, you can speak it without an accent, you know. Um, but at the same time, what I got from Jimmy is that the, the highest thing that we can do with our instrument is to make it our own and find our own direction, our own personal expression. And so I, I did that. And, and in, that did not end up really sounding like an imitation of Jimi Hendrix. So it's interesting now for me to go back to those roots and re, revisit that and imagine where would, where would Jimmy be if he were playing today? What would he be playing? Because in one point of view, my whole career as a guitarist has been an exploration of that very question because um, he influenced me from, from the start. So it's not like, it, I, I don't care to debate, like, it, it's not like, you know, like I'm trying to, to say that this is exactly how he'd be playing today. I don't want to argue about it. This is my version of Hendrix today. If you want to do it, do your own version of Hendrix today. I think it could be a genre, you know. But I do think that because of my connection, my early connection to his music, I think that I can do it with, with some understanding, you know, and, and, and reverence. And so the way I approach it, I approach it as an actor as well as a musician. So I go on stage as, as Jimi Hendrix. And I do everything I can to convince you that I'm Jimi Hendrix in this show. So it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting show because it gives me an opportunity to celebrate one of my great musical heroes. And at the same time, I'm bringing things to that music that are, that are unique, that you are not going to find in, in any typical Hendrix tribute. That's great. Do we have any other questions? Or? Come on up. Next time we'll set up a microphone sensor. That's all I can do these days. I was just curious about this gentleman referring to a Chico. Who, what was this club and who was he? The club? In, was it around Monmouth, New Jersey? Or what? Oh. Mon- Mon- I was thinking of Chico Hamilton. But no, no, sorry. Okay. Speaking of Hendrix, 
Did you ever play uh, Hear My Train of Coming? Yeah. Solo? Yeah. That solo thing just blew my mind when I heard yeah. that. Because mm -hmm. that, that one really didn't come out until after he died. Ding, 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 that acoustic. Ding, ding. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like Charlie Patton. Yeah. Yeah, right. You know, Johnson. but what he did is he took, he took that whole, the whole Delta blues thing and then modernize it into the, into the future. Um, I think um, Sun Ra was from Saturn. I think Jimmy was, was from Venus. And, and, and he read a lot of science fiction, and he was very much into a futuristic vision of things. And, you know, there's this word that's out that's kind of chic right now, Afrofuturism. But Jimmy was doing it a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that 12-string acoustic moment of Jimmy's doing uh, Let My, uh, and he, Hear My Train to Come. And he did so much in such a short time. And, and what's amazing, too, is when you think about it, his whole time that he ever played guitar was not much more than about 10 years. Isn't that true about so many of the giants? Like Charlie Parker was 10 years. Wes Montgomery, 10 years. Really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, and I've now, already been playing like five times that long. I almost feel like guilty, you know, like, you know, but no, I'm not going to go there. But, you know, I do believe that um, we need to have, we need to foster an environment that's more nurturing for the arts, more nurturing for musicians. You know, I just got back from Cuba. And one of the things that fascinates me by, about Cuba is the number of amazing musicians who come from there. And I finally got a chance to go to go to the source, you know. Although I didn't have time to really check out the education system as much as I wanted to. Was so, this in Havana? Yeah. Okay. So on a future trip, I want to dig a little deeper into that. Was but the, people talked about how proud they are of their education system. Was it the festival? That, yeah, uh, the Havana Jazz Festival. The Chucho Valdez. Yeah. Uh, that Chucho is behind. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. 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 So... This is one of the things that's motivated me to, you know, re rededicate myself to to the art of of teaching. You know, I've had some wonderful teachers in in my life, and I stand on their shoulders. You know, so. You want to mention one or two of them? Well, so I mentioned Milton Babbitt, um, Elroy Jones, who most people probably wouldn't know, but a local guitarist who was. Um, a teacher to so many people in the Bay Area. Um, I, I did this album called um, Feather in the Wind, and a lot of guitarists who inspired me, there were influences from them on that album, including Joe Pass, um, Larry Coryell, um, Alan Holdsworth, um, just some really interesting influences. And um, we are working on getting that album out, hopefully this year sometime, it'll come out. And I've got another one on the way. That album's done, it's just not released yet. And I have another one on the way. It's um, all made in Brazil. And every time I go to Brazil, we record a little bit more of it. And Brazil was the, was the first country outside of the USA where I started to have a big audience. In fact, um, first time I went was 85 and I played for four days in the free jazz festival in Rio 
And every day when we went to the festival, I noticed there were a lot of people panhandling. And I finally had to ask, what's up with all these people panhandling here? And they said, oh, yeah, you know, we have a big problem with poverty. And most of these people will never be able to see a concert like yours because they will, will never have the money for a ticket. And I thought, well, you know, that sucks. Why don't we do something like, why don't we do a free concert? Like when we, when we finish the festival, so I'm all done, I'll stay extra, and we'll do a free concert. And they said, yes, that's a great idea. Let's do it. So um, we played in this park called Katakumba. And um, they just ran a little ad in the paper that day because they didn't want too many people to, to come. God forbid. Yeah. yeah. Well, word got out, and shoot, the park filled up. 15,000 people. It was the biggest crowd that had ever come to see me play. And I was like, wow, you know, I think I found my, my audience. I think I found my people. <laughs> And it was just a wonderful experience. And, and to this day, I could be anywhere on the planet. And somebody will come up to me and say, I'm from Brazil, and I saw you in Katokumba. <laughs> I could be anywhere, Japan, it doesn't matter, anywhere. And I found out more. Um, I, I, go, I still go there a lot. I spend a month or two every year in Brazil. I go there at least once, once or twice every year. And the, the last time I was there... Um, I found out another backstory that I didn't know about that park. That um, the park was a was a residential area. I mean, not like like houses per se, but just a lot of people were living in that area. And um, then the government came in with bulldozers and said, "Okay, we're clearing you guys out, and we're going to put a park here." So people had kind of a heavy heart about that place because people had been displaced from that spot. And so to have the music and have a concert there, I think, was a, was a healing thing, you know. And um, just other little things, you know, like I played with this, with this um, um, percussionist um, near Recife in the northeast of Brazil. You know, and just for me, I, I've, that kind of stuff is fun. And I used to be a street musician, so it's like, you know, it's not a big deal to just break out the guitar and, hey, let's jam pretty much anywhere, you know. But to the, to the people who knew about it, and to, for the people who were there, it's, I think it really meant a lot to them, you know? And, and so um, I think that it, it, I mean, I didn't do it for the marketing <laughs> benefit, but, but it, it did a lot to endear me, to, to create a good, um, you know, connection with people in, in Brazil. And, and so I would say Brazil, I'm more well-known in Brazil than any other country, definitely, definitely more than, than here. And I've, I've performed in over 70 countries. So, you know, it adds up. We just added China and, and Cuba. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to um, New Zealand for the first time in a couple of months. Um, but, you know, the world is changing, too, and, and so I'm kind of thinking, okay, I kind of feel like slowing the traveling down a little bit. My body is telling me it's getting to be a little much. So, you know, the teaching thing is is awesome. And now that we have the Internet, there's so many ways we can connect, you know, without having to physically go. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the worst parts of the job that I have here is to let you guys know that we're running out of time.
So uh, I just want you to join me in thanking Stanley Jordan for being here and sharing oh, so, much so much incredible mu- information, experiences. Oh, thanks. And if you feel like, you know, speaking with him afterwards, he's right here. Guys, thank you all for being here. Your spirit, your attention, your focus is what makes all of this possible. So thank you again for being here. Uh, Tomorrow, Archie Shep will be here at the same time, 3 to 4 on this stage. Thank you again.